0: Welcome to Frontline Defenders Rights on the Line podcast presenting the voices, perspectives and experiences of human rights defenders at risk and focusing on human rights issues across the globe. Yeah, welcome Colin. Uh, it's really great to have you with us and um I know you have a really commendable background uh, in human rights in Northern Ireland. Notably, you are commissioner on the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission and you're professor of human rights law and the director of the Human Rights Center in the School of Law at Queen's University at the moment. And you also hold a number of other accolades, which I will allow you to elaborate on as well. But today. yeah, I'm going to ask you to tell me a bit more about yourself in context of, you know, being a human rights defender and tell me more about what it is that you've been working on as a human rights defender and an academic at the same time.
1: Well, well, thank you very much and just really delighted to to, to join you in, in the conversation today. Uh, as you made clear, I'm Professor of Human Rights Law and Director of Human Rights Center in the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast. Um, in 2024 I'll have been in academic life for around 30 years. You know I've worked in a number of universities uh, across these islands and I've also taught and researched internationally as well, with a focus very much on human rights, law and policy in search terms, but also in action as well. So I've been very involved throughout my academic career with uh, NGOs, with civil society in terms of realising some of the rights objectives that uh, we're talking about today. I started off my academic career working on the rights of refugees and asylum seekers. In fact, that's my first book is is in that area. I was working in that in the 90s when uh, the UK government was taking a particularly uh, appalling approach and nothing new there in terms of the the refugee uh, rights. Uh, And I suppose in in more recent years, I've been very much involved in the outworkings of the Good Friday Agreement, the peace agreement in Northern Ireland, and involved in the human rights promises, really, in that agreement. Uh, One thing you've mentioned already, I was a commissioner on the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission from 2005 to 2011, so served two terms on that, and was involved in drafting, and working on the Bill of Rights advice, to the British government in relation to Northern Ireland, which we submitted on the 10th of December 2008, also involved in work around a Charter of Rights for the island of Ireland. And I suppose it gives a a clue to our discussion when I I tell you that neither of those things have been delivered as yet. There's no Bill of Rights in Northern Ireland and there's no Charter of Rights for the island. And in fact, as we speak, there's some concerns in terms of what's happening to the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission in the here and now in terms of its accreditation, for example, internationally. So, it, in a sense, been involved very much in recent years around that. And I suppose post-Brexit, to bring it right up to date, really been involved in the con- looking at the human rights and equality consequences of Brexit for the island of Ireland and across these islands, really, but also specifically Northern Ireland. I was involved in a project recently called Brexit Law and I, where we worked with... a. A civil society organization, the Committee on the Administration of Justice, which is an NGO in Northern Ireland, a human rights NGO, to work on a research co- project looking at the outworkings of Brexit, uh, which are worrying and disturbing. And we were involved in making the case for special arrangements that, that ended up with the protocol protections around rights and equality. And most recently, I suppose, been very involved in the conversation around potential constitutional change on the island of ireland i'm on the management board of an organization civil society called ireland's future um the good friday agreement contains uh, a right to self-determination really so i've been involved in that discussion as well and as you can imagine you know after brexit where northern ireland was removed from the european union against the wishes of a majority of people there's been a lot of focus on the fact that there's a way back to the european union so i've been thinking about the human rights and equality dimensions of that as well so that's that's an elongated summary of uh my sure. life and career uh, to date
0: all right and um so before you know i get to asking about the progress in in terms of what you've just told me yeah. um tell me a bit more about you know what has motivated you and what has pushed you to to be working on uh, advocating for a united Island and for human rights for the bill of human rights in northern ireland um, perhaps you know whether come from your your background growing up and yeah like what's got you here
1: yeah no well I'm uh, I was born in Derry in 1970 so very many people here today talk about being you know children of the peace process the good friend again well well, I'm a child of the conflict if you think about it my entire childhood I was brought up during the, the conflict I lived in Derry in the 70s and 80s. So my formative years, you know, the experience of conflict where I grew up had a profound impact on what I've done throughout my life. And in terms of Derry itself, where I grew up, were really the origins of the civil rights movement in in Northern Ireland were there. There was a profound sense in the household and my wider family that people felt they were being treated like second-class citizens in their own, you know, place of birth you know um and so there's also major issues of socioeconomic deprivation as well going on around the the conflict where I grew up and so and it really while it's possible to sort of retrospectively uh talk about a narrative in terms of but it gave me a really sense of purpose around life you know it, it really has shaped my dedication to two things particularly one is human rights and their importance and it's really had Very, very formative impact in relation to that, but also the importance of peace and peace processes and peace agreements and how you try and bring conflict to an end. So, those two things really shaped my life and work. I suppose I'm from here to be candid. Um, You know, I'm an Irish citizen, EU citizen. You know, I'm from the north of, of Ireland and I care very deeply about what's been happening so i want to be part of of doing the responsible thing really and planning properly and talking about the future but as a human rights activist as a human rights defender whatever happens in the future you know i want to see human rights protected in the here and now and in any new frameworks that may emerge down the line and that's why it's so disappointing for me that for example we don't have a bill of rights where i spent a Long, you know, the last two decades of my life have really been dominated by trying to get a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland implemented and I'm watching successive governments really in London fail to do that. So uh, as we know, human rights is always work in progress. So <laughs> I'll continue to work on that, whatever happens constitutionally, you know, now or in the future.
0: And just to expand on on the issue of the Bill of Rights, what has been the hold back from, from getting a Bill of Rights implemented, you know?
1: Again, it's a great question. In terms of the Good Friday Agreement, what's quite interesting about that agreement is how much human rights and equality are central to the document. So the agreement led to the creation of a Human Rights Commission in Northern Ireland, Northern Human Rights Commission, but it also contained a remit and mandate for a Bill of Rights that would really build on the European Convention on Human Rights, in a sense go further than than the Human Rights Act so really that process started in march 2000 was launched in march 2000 the commission submitted its advice in december 2008 and it was really about the the hopes and aspirations and of people that that peace would bring a better society and you know of being ambitious around issues of equality and human rights so the advice that the human rights commission submitted contains you know civil political economic social cultural rights there's environmental rights in there as well, including quite robust justiciability uh, attached to all of those too. Now the British government didn't accept uh, a significant number of those recommendations. It hasn't been enacted, but it's really a sense in which you know it's quite right in terms of the experience of the society, in terms of the most marginalised and vulnerable people here. That 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 we be and we continue to be ambitious in relation to realising human rights protection, because there is a sense that some of the most damaged communities in Northern Ireland have been left behind by elements of the peace process. I know that's not unique to Northern Ireland, and that's a picture that emerges, you know, peace processes around the world. But, you know, we we just need to keep working at trying to realise, you know, some of the ambitions that were there around the peace agreement in the here and now and whatever emerges in the future. Mm -hmm.
0: And then, you know, to come to the question of... um... If you can expand on, you know, what is what is your meaning of of a united island, and and what does that look like for you?
1: Well, I suppose just to frame that in in context, the the Good Friday Agreement, peace agreement, has a really fascinating mechanism for resolving our self determination conundrum. In a sense, the ethno national division. At the heart of the conflict here the idea of you know staying in the uk or reuniting ireland and essentially what the agreement does is leave the decision essentially for the people of the island of ireland so the right to self-determination in the agreement has a really interesting formula uh, that, that really merits wider attention it basically says the two jurisdictions on the island of ireland uh, the right belongs to the people of the island of ireland but will be determined by concurrent consent, north and south. You know, which there's a debate around that, my view essentially that will be referendums north and south to decide on the constitutional future. So really interesting thing about Northern Ireland is the constitutional future, whether staying in the union with Britain or uh, reuniting with Ireland will be decided by the people here. And I suppose in in the consequence of Brexit, people being removed from the EU against their will. The European Council in April 2017 you know made clear that there's an automatic way back to the EU if Northern Ireland does opt to reunite with Ireland using the precedent of for example Germany. and so you know in my, my view we ought not to be talking about this <laughs> given what's happening in Brexit, given the really quite hostile environment to rights that's emerging uh, in the sort of Brexiteer government in, in London. Uh, It doesn't really reflect many of the values uh, that people hold here around the agreement. So that's really the framework for the discussion. I suppose one aspect of that for me is that as this conversation advances, and it clearly is advancing as people think about what might happen in the next decade, that we just make sure that rights and equality are central to that so rather than you know be a bystander in that discussion i've made a very personal decision myself after brexit that i have a responsibility to engage very proactively in that mm. to reflect some of the values that i've been working on uh, throughout my life and the reason for doing that is i worry sometimes that understandably there's a nervousness about approaching these topics uh, in northern ireland but if If people who are committed to, you know, an ambitious human rights agenda or equality agenda stay out of those discussions, you know, the the parameters of those might get frozen quite early. And it's just important that um, human rights voices, if you like, or human rights friendly voices are part of that discussion. Mm -hmm. And it's encouraging to see, I think, now more and more people are Mm -hmm. engaging in that discussion, whatever people's constitutional preference, whether they stay in the union with Britain or whether they leave and reunite with Ireland. It's just essential that human rights stays at the heart of those discussions. And really, it's disturbing to see, you know, with what's emerging in London around legacy legislation here,
0: mm-hmm. around
1: what they're planning to do with the Human Rights Act, it looks like still. Um, can you, you know, can you
0: expand on, expand on that a little bit for us?
1: Well, you know, one of the things that concerned me about brexit at the time you know made the argument that brexit's part of a larger agenda mm. so the one part of that agenda was leaving the european union but within that agenda is also an antipathy to the sort of human rights culture that human rights advocates and activists and people like myself have been working very very hard for for many many decades and i think we're beginning to see the outworkings of mm. that uh, hostile agenda which was there for a long time but is now sort of surfacing so having left the european union you know the there's what's happening around legacy here there's what's happening around the bill of rights bill which essentially will just tear apart many domestic human rights protections within uh the uk you have Mm -hmm. legislation around getting rid of you know retained eu law which is going through Westminster at the moment. And it just looks looks like a very, very disturbing future, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly Mm -hmm. around areas of social and economic rights and the sort of, you know, the sort of model of the future that the the Brexiteers seem Mm -hmm. to want would Mm -hmm. make you very nervous about Mm -hmm. basic protections, including in the area of employment law, for example, and environmental protection Mm -hmm. in the decade ahead in the UK. So I Mm -hmm. think that's part of that, and, and you're seeing what's happening in relation to immigration and asylum and refugee policy, which, you know, frankly, some of it is deeply, deeply disturbing. Some of the rhetoric around at the moment. So it's it's quite understandable. Mm. Many people, not just in Northern Ireland, but you know, in Scotland and Wales as well, are mm-hmm. thinking very hard about where this is all going. You know,
0: definitely. And uh, I'm I, I'm aware of of what has happened with Scotland that. Yeah. The, you know, the push to have the referendum was rejected yeah. and, and yeah. you know, the conversation of um, the, the wider protections, I guess, that you would get belonging to the EU. And so would you say that, you know, since Brexit, that that scope of protection for human rights within Northern Ireland or even, you know, broader Britain was decreased?
1: Yeah, Brexit and the sort of Brexit that this government in London are, is pursuing is deeply concerning from a human rights perspective. There's no doubt about that. So one thing that's slightly different from Scotland is that you'll know that a protocol was negotiated um, in relation to Northern Ireland, Ireland. And there's a provision in that protocol, Article 2 of that protocol on human rights and equality that includes a no diminution commitment. And thats that'll be interesting to see how that article of the protocol, which has been incorporated into domestic law, is used in the years ahead. So it provides a measure of safeguard or mitigation Mm -hmm. uh, for Northern Ireland. It doesn't cover everything and it is a no-diminution commitment, Mm -hmm. uh, which involves a certain amount of keeping pace with the EU law as well. So that's an important safeguard, but it's still the overall picture remains, I think, deeply Mm. concerning as to the direction of travel, because ultimately the protocol simply mitigates some of the mm-hmm. harsher elements of mm-hmm. uh, Brexit.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. And, uh, you know, coming back to what you said earlier, that it's important not to forget the element of human rights in, in all of these political discussions. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm aware that you have faced significant resistance um, and threats, harassment, intimidation, because of the views that you advocate for and, you know, just pushing for that element of human rights. So if we can dive into this a little bit more and maybe let's start with the political sphere and talking about how the, how you've been received in that space. Uh, Obviously, as you mentioned, it's a very tense and contentious topic in both Ireland and the UK. And yeah, how, how have political parties uh, at the first glance reacted to you?
1: Again, that's, you know, it's it's a, it's a good question in terms of the Northern Ireland context. And, you know, some people would be more familiar than others with it. But maybe if the context is obviously the political parties here who very firmly believe in the union with Britain. Um, in addition and separate to that, there are obviously also still armed groups <laughs> in Northern Ireland that uh, on the loyalist side, for example, have been making uh, quite loud noises about the protocol and more recently. Have been using in quite intimidating, threatening language about potentially, you know, in the worst case scenario, going back to, to armed conflict. So, one of the consequences of my work uh, has been uh, a lot of focused attention, if you like, from those various constituencies. So, for example, all the main members of all the main unionist parties have engaged with my employer, Queen's University Belfast, about me and in, in, in my work. and. Um, I've encountered quite a significant uh, amount of political hostility really from those p- political parties. And I suppose the thing that has really struck me reflecting on it is you know the extent to which that has been targeted at my employer and my employment around Queen's and the number of research reports and projects that I've worked on where people have literally gone to my boss, the vice chancellor of the university to raise issues. Um there's, you know, so that's been sustained for the last three, year, three years or more. Um, I have found myself the subject of often quite hostile commentary from a number of high profile commentators here. And then like everybody uh, in my situation, although I'm I'm not essentially in public life, I'm an academic at Queen's, uh, mm-hmm. the world of social media in which I've been called every possible name I can think of. And I've also just rather sinister and threatening Uh, things said on a consistent basis. And I suppose ultimately what has happened also is because they're paramilitaries, like I'll be very candid, they're armed groups that are still recruiting and active in Northern Ireland some of those noises have been emanating from those armed grips and most recently where they've been talking about coming off their ceasefires and targeting people you know i've used the language which you know i've documented this meticulously and worked very closely you know with my own legal advisors as well and that you know basically a virtual target has been painted on my back mm-hmm. by uh, this just noise this consistent noise uh, that's been going on for around three years or so now. Yeah. Um, that is essentially uh, about professional delegitimization, uh, but making all sorts. You know, and you'll know this from the the world of human rights defenders. You know, con- connecting me with armed groups, saying I'm not who I say I am. Sort of all sorts of disinformation, misinformation, plain old fashioned <laughs> lies, but just repeated time and time again um and it just the worry is it puts into people's minds you know oh you know Colin Harvey you know become I become essentially a legitimate target of attack
0: mm. uh,
1: in terms of what people are doing and you know for human rights defenders you know I'm re I'm conscious I'm also quite in a privileged position you know and the situation in Northern Ireland is not the same situation as faced by other human rights defenders around the world so I recognize the privileges that I have but I also don't want to be naive um, in terms of what's happening at the moment so obviously you know I'm in liaison with the police I've had security advice I've had to take precautions in terms of my own Mm -hmm. personal security Mm -hmm. um but obviously this all has to be viewed in the context of of the sort of unfolding Brexit disaster in Northern Ireland, you know that has destabilized everything here.
0: All right, and and how can you tell me more about how you've how you've managed to deal with that? Um, maybe expand on the the security you've had to get, and um, yeah, you know how, how have you dealt with that?
1: Well, I think the the the, the first thing is you know, I, I I would be one of these people in life who, you know, tends to try and recognize that there are human rights defenders around the world who are in much worse positions than I am. And so I'm always trying to, you know, balance uh, all the different factors in play, but, you know, serious people who have given me serious advice have, you know, Told me quite directly (laughs) that I need to be uh, taking this stuff very, very seriously indeed. So, Mm. you know, as uncomfortable as that is, and to be candid, at times, frankly, excruciatingly embarrassing. Mm. You know, I've had to, you know, I've talked publicly about my workplace. I have, you know, a panic alarm in my office, my nameplate identifications, all that's removed from my place of employment. attack alarms and all of that and I've got uh you know uh, liaising with the PSNI in Northern Ireland about my own personal security and many you know people who listen to this will know the sorts of things mm. that you have to factor in to your mm. life around all, all of that and I don't want to be naive in mm. terms of that but I suppose the other thing Aisha is that really the the amount of support for the work that, that, mm-hmm. that I'm doing you know, the solidarity, support have been sort of networked in the wider human rights world for many, many decades. And it's really just been overwhelming to, you know, it's just incredible to be able to draw on people in times of need because, you know, we're all, in some ways, we're all in the same sort of global argument and we all at various points at different times have to help and support each other. And I never in a million years I would never have imagined I would be, you know, friends that I've known in the human rights world from the nineties, having to draw on their solidarity, you know, I w- could never have imagined that, mm. but, you know, having that support, you know, being at the frontline defenders event recently, listening to other stories, never thinking I'd be the one sitting there, mm-hmm. uh, having to, to do all this, you know, has been really. Powerful, overwhelming, but really, really incredibly helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I guess that that would have brought me, you know, to the next question about where where you draw your support from. And yep. um, you know, you so you mentioned you know the broader human rights world as well. Um, what's it like for you on the ground? What's your what's your support like on the ground in Northern Ireland?
1: I think there's you'll know yourself because of the you know we've been through a conflict. We've had a peace process. And one of the amazing things about um, societies like this anywhere, and you'll know from South African experience as well, yourself is just amazing civil society networks of resilience that have built up over decades. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to draw upon, you know, those networks of civil and civic and community support that really grew up around the peace process Mm -hmm. and that understand these issues that have a historical memory of where some of this irresponsible language can lead. You know, Mm -hmm. people like me have in the past been killed, like to be be candid in terms of, as a result of some of this. So being, and I've been involved in those NGOs for a long, long time. And again, just never thought I'd be the one, you know, Mm -hmm. picking up the phone, having to say, look, I need your help on this stuff or them being in contact with me to offer it. So it's that really. That sort of network of civic society organizations. Mm-hmm. Also, I've been engaged with the UN system, UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights Defenders, Mary Lawler, and others mm-hmm. have been very supportive and helpful. Has frontline defenders and others too, uh, Human Rights First, Brian Dooley, people like that. You know, it's just been great to be able to draw on that sort of essentially civic society knowledge, experience, and expertise, including sort of practical things that you can try and do. You know, the people who can cut through in some senses all the the personal embarrassment that I feel around some of this, talking about it, and just tell me what to do that would be useful. And I think you know, who 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 know about strategy and tactics and I've just learned so much engaging with people around this.
0: All right. I just want to pick up on on the one point you yeah. you're speaking. Of, if if you're comfortable to speak about yeah. it, um, you know when you you're speaking about the the embarrassment, is this in relation to kind of the defamation and and you know the terrible things that are being said about you?
1: I, that, that's that's a great question. You know, I think what it comes from is is having to speak about yourself. Yeah, because um, I, I'm a, I'm an academic. I'm I'm a human rights activist. I I spent my entire life. Being in solidarity with other people, making the case for the rights of some of the most marginalized and vulnerable people Mm -hmm. on this island, on these islands and around the world. So really being a human rights defender for other people. So then finding yourself in the position where you're the person who Mm. is, is, is you know, just even having these sorts of conversations, you're entering into personalized territory you're, you're trying to think about even the question you asked earlier about, you know, where did your own motivations and and like I, for, I'm sure this is universally true for people. It's just sometimes that's un, un, uncomfortable and difficult space because, you know, I spend so much of my, my life advocating for other people. And I just and in some sense, is the theme of our discussion, I never thought I'd find myself being the person who other people had to advocate on behalf of and it still feels completely surreal and there's part of me wants to just ignore it and mm. keep on going as normal but I've been resolutely and firmly told <laughs> by a number of people that I can't do that and I need to uh, I need to talk about these things and I suppose the final point would be uh, a larger point around you know I do recognize the privileges that I have as an academic at, at Queensland and all the other associated privileges around that so I am determined also to call this out for other people if I can. So, even in a small way, if anything that I do uh, helps anybody else who may not be in the position that Mm -hmm. I hold in a university, I still have a job, I think, as we speak, um, then I want to do that as well because I think it's important that we carve out safe spaces for people to have these difficult conversations. So, if anything that I do can contribute to helping, to make these spaces safe for other people who work in the world of equality and rights and social climate justice nice. to join these conversations then it will have been you know constructive and productive as well beyond myself because there are bigger collective discussions and debates that need to be had and people can't be afraid part of the reason why let, let's be candid people are attacking me repetitively in the way that they are as they want to create a chill factor mm-hmm. they're u- using me to send a message and the message they want to send is, look, if you do what Colin Harvey does, we'll do exactly the same to you. Mm. And I just think the more I try to continue in a responsible way to do what I do, to call it out and to try and encourage others onto the same ground and that mm-hmm. they're safe to do so, then hopefully that will be helpful for other people as well.
0: Yeah. Look, I wanted to say as well, I think uh, I often find with human rights defenders when the, the discomfort of speaking about themselves is, re- is really Honestly, just a, a true testament that your heart is in the right place and you're doing things for the right reasons, you know. So, yeah, just just to mention that. Yeah. Um, I think my my last question would come to you know in terms of your your academic career and your academic life, and you know I think in academia it's it's harder to dispute or defame someone's work. When it's kind of backed up by facts, and and it's you know it's there's a process to to the writing that you're publishing. So, yeah. my last question would be um, whether that has impacted your reputation as a human rights scholar in the academic world, and and what your experience been in that sense.
1: Yeah, I, again, I I think that's a fantastic question, and that's probably where I've felt the the most difficulty because clearly another aim of what's been happening is professional delegitimization mm. in a sense to um like i'm coming close to 30 years as an academic i'm a former head of the law school at queen's university of belfast i've he- held senior management positions mm. in academia i've written multiple multiple things footnote laden tedious boring articles that nobody reads and uh, sitting in the in the library i've done all of that but since this commenced it's it's almost as if i'm i'm a different person you know and and part of that is just to completely delegitimize what is a fairly long uh, you know academic career which as you rightly say other people can judge the merits of what i have done by, by reading material and very often the, the the attacks aren't based on anything to do with substance. You know, a re- recent example of that was focusing on the logo of a research report that I just published. Then, when we actually published the research report, there was which was sixty-page, boring sort of legal research report. You know, there was very little substantive comment ar- ar- around that. The difficulty is, what happens is, and I'm going to use terrible language about myself. I be- I become toxic. So the campaign against me toxifies me. Therefore, people think twice about involving me in projects. Uh, they think twice about inviting me to things that I become, and I'm gonna be very, very candid here, can become very, very isolated in my professional environment. You know, the sort of people might shuffle sideways if they see you getting into the lifts, or, you know, it's, and that's, that's an intangible thing. I'm aware, and I have evidence to support this, that that has actually happened wow. to me. But there's also the intangible side of it where you don't know what you were. And, and part of that is disappointing, And there's, but there's also been a lot of academic solidarity as well. But it's also, this is going to sound terrible, but it's sort of understandable because if you involve Colin Harvey in your research project, all this horrible stuff, comes in your direction as well so in some senses and and this is a familiar issue around you know the the campaign of misinformation disinformation toxification is intended to isolate me professionally and you know in in a strange way I don't blame some colleagues because in a sense who wants all this coming in their direction. I suppose a final point in that, I often say to people, the best people will send me emails and they'll write and say expressing solidarity. And sometimes I say that the best thing you can do is show, not tell, you know? So don't send me a long email, just involve me in your work. And all you need is, you know, all I need sometimes is to be invited to the thing. (laughs) So don't send me the email, just invite me into your event or your project or or involve Mm -hmm. me in things because part of the my attempt to counter some of this is, is, is to try and mainstream myself back into being a sort of boring academic at Queens who does boring academic things but uh, it's a brilliant question it's a very very familiar theme around the world in terms of it's just direct professional delegitimization and ultimately the sinister element which I've seen happening in Northern Ireland is you know I I'm an academic I have a salary coming in but if People maybe work on a freelance basis or they're dependent on funding or other things. You know, there's a scary component to that, you know, that that is really serious ramifications. Um, and the final, final point is, look, I'll be very candid. Some of the the people involved in this have been trying to get me sacked from my my job at Queen's for the last three years. Like, There's no way of putting it. And so um, so that's that's a major component. Uh, of all this, and it's something I, I'm thinking very hard as to how I both continue. Because one way, you know, of dealing with all this is just to stop, you know, so if I go away and stop, but the important thing, particularly from a human rights perspective is that, and this is true for human rights defenders everywhere, that in a sense that we don't stop, that that you keep going, and that, you know, that you're not the problem, you know, because there is a tendency to say, look, people demanding change are the problem, and if they just stop demanding change, you know, we wouldn't be attacking them. You know, and you think you have to, you have to push back against that narrative, both here and wherever it is happening. Mm-hmm.
0: Definitely, definitely, and uh, I mean, in the same breath, also important to to not burn out at the same time while doing that and uh, making <laughs> yeah. sure to take to take pauses and, yeah, and absolutely, and
1: <laughs> absolutely,
0: yeah. All right, well. uh Thank you so much for for chatting to me. This was uh a really like insightful and and really good conversation. Um is there anything else, you know, that that you want to add um before we finish off?
1: No, it's just to to thank you and to thank Frontline Defenders for all your solidarity and support and we lead really to um you know, all the magnificent work that you do in standing up for human rights defenders all around the world when we're living through what is effectively a global human rights crisis where when, when human rights the whole concept and principle of universal human rights in a sense is coming under attack uh in, in many uh parts of the world so absolutely vital uh, the work that you do and just to congratulate and keep going
0: thank you thank you so much colin and and likewise you. to you thank you for the work that you're doing thank and you. uh, do keep going and be in touch yeah. with us um whenever it's needed <laughs> thank you so much Thank you for listening to this episode of Rights on the Line. Visit www.frontlinedefenders.org to listen to other interesting episodes. Subscribe and share.